Hey, so today we are hosting a friend of mine. He is a computational poet. Yes, there is a term like this. He writes poetry with computers. He leads an R&D team in a tech company while he works with AI and other technologies to produce those poems. He calls his work augmented poetry, basically enabling humans to manipulate language by employing automated algorithms. We will talk about creativity and machines. We will hear about the first Eurovision song he produced with one of his algorithms. We will learn about Frankie, a robot that asks humans what it means to be a human, and much more. His name is Eran, and we recorded together in Tel Aviv. So enjoy it. We are being told to choose between the left and right brain, between studying art and engineering, between creative and analytical thinking. Our society tells us that art and business are not connected. But what if society is wrong? What if it misleading us? The good news is that understanding what art is can bring us to a new revelation. Art does matter in innovation, technology and entrepreneurship. And with the help of this podcast and its guests, you as well will learn that art is not an object. Art is a mindset. You are listening to the Artian Podcast with me, Nir Hindi. Hey podcast listeners and welcome back to the Artian Podcast. And today we are recording from Tel Aviv at Google for Startups Campus. And with us we have Eran Adas. Welcome Eran. Uh, hi Nir, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. I want to start maybe with a very simple question for our listeners. Can you introduce yourself? <laughs> uh, my name is Eran Adas and I'm a digital poet and... My background is in computer science, but I always had a passion for poetry and for art, and I decided to combine the two fields together. The kind of poetry I uh, relate to the most is not a lyric, confessional type of poetry, but rather an experimental kind of poetry that plays with language and And tries to find the potential of language and they do that by using computer programming great so you're kind of working in the intersection I would say of uh, computers and art and you have like day job in a startup on the day-to-day as well you are an artist and you also lead the development part in a startup company right uh, true I always joke and I say that I do poetry for a living and a high-tech job for pleasure. <laughs> But you know, it's not like that. Uh, it's hard to make a living out of art or poetry, especially in a small country like Israel. And the tech companies bring money. Yeah, what we're famous money. for. So before I kind of uh, go in-depth into the poetry part, I want to kind of uh, ask you, what do you do exactly in... at the startup. I lead the R&D team, which means that I do uh, write my own code, but I also try to find new technologies or try to bring technologies that are working to work better in my company. I have a yearly annual uh, work plan and uh, yeah, how to spend their resources and all of that, you know. Um, A lot of project management, as a matter of fact, a lot of testing of new technologies or relevant technologies to what we do. 
And, uh, you know, tasks of improving the code, uh, new features, requests for change and all of that. So this is what you do for pleasure. <laughs> Now let's, let's talk about what you do for a living. And you started saying that you are a digital poet. Obviously, it already implies some of the things that you're probably doing. But can you elaborate a bit more? What does it mean to be a digital poet? The most basic thing is that part of the poems that I create are being created not by me writing directly the words and putting them into sentences or lines and verses, but rather I write the code that generates the texts for me. So now I have a question because it's an interesting uh, topic. So in that case, who is the creator, you or the machine? Well, I hope to get to a stage where the role of the computer is central enough to call it the creator. But currently, even with the state-of-the-art AI models, I think that the human part is still... Crucial. It is crucial, but it's more central than the one by the AI. Uh, if you know, many speak today of OpenAI's the GPT-2 model that generates paragraphs of text. It completes an initial text that you give it, and uh, it creates... Like the one in Gmail when I start to write a sentence? No, it's, offer? it's even... Uh, well, I don't want to get into the competition, uh, <laughs> the commercial competition, but today there are models that can generate texts that seem or manage to imitate some features that we attribute only to humans. But mm. still, I think the computers are still far from passing the Turing test, and that's a broad uh, meaning. So maybe in one sentence you can uh, share with our listeners, what is the Turing test? It's a test where you are giving a computer a task and it performs it in a way that is indistinguishable from humans. You don't know whether it was done by a computer or by humans. You build computer-based poetry generators that utilize the internet for their input and you call it augmented poetry. Why you chose this definition, augmented poetry? That's a good question because I kind of uh, did projects in different areas and uh, things got uh, mixed up by me and by others. First of all, I have a project that is poetry combined with augmented reality. What's the name of the project? It's a book called Half Reading. It was published uh, in 2018. And the idea is that you've got a poetry book where each uh, poem has two halves. The, the first part is printed on paper, and it's on the left-hand side uh, page. And on the right-hand side page, you have this visual marker, a number printed on the on the page and if you direct your phone on it and you look at the number then the other half of the poem appears virtually on the phone and this is using augmented reality technology on the phone it's a web ar technology you you don't need an app for it you just go to a website and then uh, point the camera over the page. So in this case, you can read the poetry only by having both the physical object, the book, 
and using technology. Usually, it's only one of the two. You know, people think that technology distracts people from reading. So if you want to you read a paper it. book, exactly. And so in this case, I kind of harness the power of technology or the, the attention span of technology, the need, the urge of people to check their notifications. They have to have the phone in their hands. So yeah, you can have the phone in your hand, but at the same time, it helps you to read the book. Yeah. So basically, this is how my poetry connects directly to augmented reality. But I try to think of it in a broader sense where I'm taking poetry out of the page. Sometimes I'm bringing it back afterwards. But I think that poetry can be found in every place. It doesn't have to be on paper. And since it's virtual and it can be created by computers and manipulated by computers on a virtual environment, you can extend or augment the environment of literature from the page to the universe, to life. By the way, there's a great moment to mention to our listeners that uh, many of the things that uh, Iran will mention during our conversation, we will later put on our website so you can go check his uh, project, the uh, video, some of the interviews, etc. So, you know, Iran, I'm always interested why artists choose the discipline they are operating uh, at. And I'm wondering, why did you choose poetry and not, I don't know, augmented painting or augmented uh, sculptures or why poetry? That's a good question. The, the, <laughs> this question sometimes comes up when avant-garde artists are asked about their special media. And um, oftentimes they say that they just sucked at the normal kind of art uh, discipline. So they had to make up something. And I, I feel the same. I mean, I cannot paint well. But I think uh, I can speak a lot. I can write uh, well in Hebrew, at least. And um, and even so, uh, most of my poetry is not about writing, but about yeah. creating something that is not writing or tries. Yeah, we'll talk about it in a second in uh, some of the projects that you did. So I always wonder also, you know, because for me, at least when I grew up, art was a passion. And I'm wondering, how did you get into art? Poetry was a passion for me. I remember since being, childhood. Yeah, yeah, being ten year old and reading all the poetry books in my uh, parents' apartment. I especially remember there was a poet named Dan Pagis who wrote poetry about the Holocaust, among mm. other things. And uh, he built the verses to resemble trains, the trains that would lead Jews mm. and other people to the concentration camps. And I didn't know that at the time. I was too young. And I thought that something was missing at those verses. I thought it was a filling, fill in the blanks kind of mm. thing. So I wrote things to, to complete the sentences. <laughs> I didn't get it at first. But then, you took something and built upon and created something else. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this is like the moment when I realized that it was like that. I felt, okay, there is magic in the structure, in the form of texts, and also in the capability to interact with them. So you kind of grew up around culture, around art at as a young kid or because you mentioned I read poetry at the age of 10 how did you even have access to poetry books yeah I, I guess it was by mistake it it wasn't typical of my I, I mean the, my parents had like two poetry books I think there was this discount on books by 
something socialist. I don't remember exactly. <laughs> so like everyone had a lot of books at home. No one would read them, but they were there. And I think uh, until today, this is quite the situation in Israel. People buy a lot of books. By the way, in Japan, now that I travel quite often to Japan, they have even a word for it, for re- buying mm-hmm. books, but not reading yeah. them. You know, Japanese have words for basically everything. And it's beautiful because I'm like that. I can never stop buying books. And I think that I need to retire probably in the next two <laughs> years in order to be able to read it all. Exactly. Or to develop a technology that would read it for you. <laughs> for me, I'm enjoying probably in a way like you. I'm still enjoying reading. I don't want anyone in that case to read it for me. I have this... enjoyment and just getting into the characters into the books into the but I feel that this is kind of disappearing in favor of other things but uh, that's why I called my book half reading because you know with with your phone at hand you're always on alert you know uh, you cannot spend five minutes without checking the notification yeah, notification so, yeah. uh, sometimes I find it horrible that we are so uh, occupied by those notification and You know, you always kind of use uh, popular technologies such as artificial intelligence and robots to create art. And one of the algorithms you actually built took the Bible and broke it into haiku, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. Obviously, I'll give you in a second the opportunity to explain it. And for the listeners that are not familiar with haiku, haiku, it's actually a form of poetry that that come from uh, Japan that builds on three sentences the in order of five syllables seven syllables and five syllables can you tell us more about this project yeah it was a project that uh, wasn't focusing so much on the technical side uh, but was more of a conceptual project I guess and the idea was to go over the Torah the five books of Moses and to extract the Only the verses that uh, adhere to the haiku convention of 575 uh, syllables. For me, it was kind of recreating the musical kind of remixes. You know, if you want to build a remix, you kind of take parts of a certain song or text or something and place it on a beat. And for me, the beat was the haiku. It, it, it had this specific rhythm, and I wanted the entire book to sound in the same rhythm. So I just took the parts that get along with it, that go along with it. And uh, it was a musical experience, but it was also a linguistic experience. Uh, I mean, uh, I did it on the Hebrew or the biblical Hebrew original text of the Torah, which is, on the one hand, the code of conduct for the Hebrew society, the Israeli society or the Jewish society, but it's also a kind of linguistically challenging text for Israeli children. You know, people uh, at schools, students are struggling with, with yeah, the Bible. Yeah, we read it with uh, the Rashi, with the explanations. Yeah, but it's not just the explanations and interpretation, but, but also it's not the same language. We, as Hebrew speakers, we treat it as the same language, but it has different grammatical rules. It has a different vocabulary. And sometimes... The idea of breaking the sentences and putting them in short verses 
give the sense of translation from the biblical Hebrew to uh, modern Hebrew. So, for instance, there is this one verse speaking about Israel running from the Egyptians, and then the Egyptians are chasing them, and it says that they die on the seashore. Uh, in Hebrew, it's metal uh, sfatayam. Now, on the other hand, in, in modern Hebrew, metal sfatayam means I kind of dig the beach. Let's go to the beach. You know, it's yeah, cool. Yeah, I love so, it. So it changes the meaning from like a war to a death to something like let's go together to the beach. Yeah. yeah. So a different reading can produce a different attitude. So in this sense, this project is not just writing, but also a reading of the Torah. So is, is there a song that the machine wrote and uh, you liked? Uh, from that project? Uh, there are a lot okay, of From that project, yeah. Yeah, so the, the question is always in such projects whether uh, you cherry-pick the ones you love or you take everything, which is like the exhaustive method. Whatever comes out, you take all of it. So in this case, in this project, uh, the first page looks like poetry, but it's, it has uh, 5,341 verses and like 5,000 of them are close to gibberish, you know, because it's just cut from the, the wrong parts. So in this case, I think there are like 200s that I like and the rest are meaningless. Okay. But in other projects, I do, I sometimes cherry pick. It depends on the nature of the project. I'm not committed to scientific methods, uh, you know. More exploratory. Or... Exactly. I want to explore those fields even if they're scientific in a sense or uh, related to engineering, but I want to explore them from my aesthetic purposes or from my aesthetic perspective. So I cannot ask you why do you like them because you already chose 200. So that will be probably challenging. But the one central choice that I made is to pick all of them. Because <laughs> I feel that in a sense, it has a value as one whole. It's like, it's a whole that has holes in it. You know, it's like, you can read the entire story of the Torah and look at it as a, a broken story or a story with holes that you have to fill them in by yourself. And I think it's, for me, it was a nice experience. It also activates the imagination. Filling it, those gaps. Yeah, I agree. So, I mean, you started to, you speak about, because you chose 200 uh, songs that you like. No, I chose everything. I chose the, the 5300. Ah. But from them, those I really like. Okay. That, you know, if I, if I go to a reading and I feel that the audience is ready for that, which is <laughs> not always the case, this experimental part is parts of my uh, book, code and uh, it's it's titled code and then i won't read everything i i read uh, only the selected few it kind of raises the question and you obviously did different uh, projects with robots with algorithms computers etc it raises the question can machine be creative Th that's a big question uh, that assumes that we are not machines because we attribute creativity to ourselves Perhaps we are not creative. Uh, <laughs> and uh, then, I mean, we... That's what I love about artists. It's always like, you know, challenging even the basic assumption that we are a machine and not... A... Yeah, uh, and that we, there are two assumptions there, that we are not machines, that we are creative. And I think that there is something about art especially, but it also applies to the human experience in general that 
It's not just about what you create, but also about how you experience the outcome of such uh, creation. So if a computer can write a poem that is not creative, but you experience it as a reader as creative, then I, I don't care. I mean, are, are we looking... It's value, valuable the same way. Yeah, so, but in this case, the role of humans becomes being a curator. You curate the, you curate the, the outcomes that the computer generated. So creativity can be also in making, can be in making, but it can also be in picking and selecting and gathering. Even in art that is not related to technology, there's this movement of an artist as a curator. So I think that computers can help us creating by them generating artifacts that we can select from and pick whatever we want from them and feels uh, creative for us. You're touching an interesting point. Because you work a lot with these technologies, we often hear like kind of this black or white or a approach to we against the machine, machine will take our role. And every time I speak with artists, often they speak about we and machines. It's not we against them, they against us. It's a war between humanities and the robots, but rather we are working together. What are your thoughts on that? Obviously. Yeah, so we started by, by saying that perhaps it's not we and them, it's us, you know, it's like maybe we're the same. We are biological machines. But if we do make uh, this um, identity culture distinction, then I'm proud of my identity as human. But uh, I think that even today, we see that technology serves us in ways that we didn't imagine. You know, if people thought that in order to uh, combine humans and computers, you have to be a cyborg, then today it doesn't have to get as physical as a cyborg. You know, we have our own memory. Each individual has their own memory, but we can also use the memory by querying Google and, or any other search engine. So we share this computerized shared memory of humanity. We have some assets that are shared to all of us and uh, are mediated by technology. So is my memory just the things that I can remember by heart or is my memory extended to the things that I can get within one second using a search engine? So I think that it's also an augmentation or an extension of our body. Apart from that, people uh, have a lot of extensions that are physical, like uh, heartbeat pacers and all, all of this uh, stuff. So uh, I think that we don't have to be afraid of that. This is not the thing that I'm afraid of. What are you afraid of? I think that there are a lot of problems with technology that stem not from technology itself, but from the people who, who, use, it. who use it or have or, or are gained the power to use it. Uh, for instance, I want, suppose I want to go to Facebook and see what my friends posted, 
I seldom do that in the last couple of years, but uh, suppose I want to do that. So the friends that I'm going to see, the way the feed is displayed to me is determined by an algorithm. And this algorithm may use uh, artificial intelligence, but it has uh, its own rules that may be determined by predetermined rules or by examples it learned from that were given to it by humans. But in any case, the vice that would determine which of my friends I'm going to see, or in other words, who are my best friends, the decision is not done by me. It's yeah. done by an algorithm. And this is something I don't like. And I don't like the fact that Facebook or uh, some other company is going to determine things about my friends. I, I want that the, <laughs> my interaction with my friends is going to be uh, conducted by me and not by technology. So this is a problem, but I don't blame technology for it. Yeah. For it. I would like to have a situation where such decisions are being created not according to commercial uh, profit, but rather by my social preferences, for instance. It's not about we and against them. It's more about we and them. It's we and it's, them against... Or maybe we <laughs> as a collective, just not we and them, is that we include already humans and... Yeah, I machine. totally agree. I think that if you think of the internet, it's an internet. The meaning of internet is networks that are connected, but the networks that are connected are both computer networks and human networks. Yeah, maybe that's a better way to phrase it. I want to go back to one of my questions because for me, art is the most humanistic aspect, at least for me. And um, it's kind of strike me to think that art can actually take this part of humans, which is the expressions of the human spirit, etc., which is art, and actually start to create its own meaning for it. And I always kind of say that for me, I feel that machines can actually create excellent cubist painting, but I'm wondering if machines can invent cubism. What do you think? I think that computers may invent their own movements or their own style. I think it does happen in a, in a sense, but the main thing for now is that even if computers can make up new things, they don't have the awareness that we have. They may create a new movement that will resemble cubism, but they're not going to understand that they're creating a new movement, and we can understand that. On the other hand, I think that part of the fun is the fact that we can see that they are not aware of what they're doing, and we can. So we have this advantage over them, and we feel good about ourselves that we are better than them. For now. For course. now. Because, I mean, you know, when you see Westworld, no, when it's Westworld <laughs> when they develop consciousness, yeah. the, the machines. Yeah, so you say at least we need to enjoy. They maybe invent cubism, but they don't know that they invented cubism. Right, but on the one hand, we can understand that. We can appreciate what they do and understand it in a way that they cannot. And the other thing is that we can compare ourselves to them. And sometimes we don't have a choice. If you see something that was computer-generated, 
you have this instinct to look at it and try to find the things that are imperfect or involve some partial awareness or, or something that looks suspicious and you know, okay, this could have been done by humans or it doesn't make sense for humans to create such a thing. I always say that it's kind of a broken mirror. You look at the mirror and something looks wrong. Something is suspicious and... I think this, this is our instinct when we look at what computers uh, have generated, and this is a way to appreciate what they do. I mean, you know, you are talking and I'm kind of uh, starting to think about what it's required from us as humans. It's actually required uh, to be present in the world and to be able to observe and recognize that there is probably gaps in understanding But I feel that many people are so occupied in their day today they don't even take the time to observe and understand that there are gaps, that there are strange situations. I, I totally agree. And therefore, I think that artists specifically are required to have critical attitude towards technology and towards what's going on with our uh, digital culture. I think that many people who are early adapters of technology and have a good understanding of it are usually lacking the critical side that artists have. And on the other hand, a lot of artists are saying, ah, I don't want to deal with technology. Let me paint. Let me just be in my room. I don't care about all these new things I have. It has nothing to do with me. And I think that in this sense, sometimes the critical people are leaving the arena to the less critical people. And uh, we are letting technology uh, take the shape of the bad things that we don't want to happen because we are saying this is not for us. And uh, I think that we, an activist approach is going to be to have people who would normally not deal with technology and deal with uh, criticism to participate and take um, a central part in shaping the future that revolves around technology. So if I ask you in one sentence, what is the role of the artist? I think to be cyber skeptical, to, <laughs> to be skeptical towards technology and to find how it affects society and to push it towards uh, more just directions of technology, to have technology be uh, decentralized and to be a more social just. Mm. Because you work a lot with the technology, I'm interested to understand what are the most influential uh, technologies of today, in your opinion? Uh, Because you work in startups as, uh, in startup as well and you are responsible for the R&D team and you work as an artist. So you kind of take, I would say, the commercial aspect, but you also have the critical aspect. So you are in between worlds. Well, th there are some technologies that are more popular than others today or that there are technologies that get all the hype. And today, uh, the fir first of all, it's machine learning, AI. I want to ask you like more, I would say, articulated question. I'm not interested to know about the popular. I'm interested to, to hear your perspective about the most influential one. I think uh, that there are influential technologies that... I'm not as close to them, and this is a criticism uh, on myself, like uh, the, the uh, cryptocurrency uh, things that I'm not uh, into it. And I know that 
I should, we should be very critical towards those technologies because they, they impose a real uh, danger to all of us and uh, they encourage, I guess, the technological divide. But the technologies that I see as influential apart from that are uh, first uh, machine learning and AI, uh, maybe reinforcement learning, all those new technologies where computers learn from examples instead of by applying domain-specific rules. And the other thing is the virtual spaces, virtual reality, extended reality, mixed reality, augmented reality, all the new realities that are not real life. And uh, in those environments, I think that a lot of AI technologies are going to develop and improve themselves because they have an environment that was built from them, that, that was designed for them. And uh, I think they can make some real progress over there. So what are the main technologies that you are working with beside the AI and machine learning? Um, it depends. I mean, um, in my art, I, I usually think of a topic and then I try to work with the most relevant technology to that specific topic. And... Uh, in addition, I, I teach a lot, so <laughs> I have to... In a second, we'll talk about your teaching. Yeah, so this affects my selection of technologies because, you know, if I have to master a technology in order to teach it, I have to do something with it first. Hi, I am Frank Pinky. I am a robot, and I am trying to figure out what it means to be human. Can you tell me about yourself? One of your favorite projects, at least the one that I like, is a project called Frankie. Can you elaborate on this project? What is this project about? What you try to achieve? It's a collaboration with Mayan Shelf and Gal Eschel. And basically, it's a robot that interviews people, asking them what it means for them to be human. Because Frankie is a robot. It doesn't know what it means to be human, so it needs people to tell it. And the thing here is that uh, philosophically, we discussed the Turing test. This is not a computer that tries to make us believe it's human. On the contrary, it asks us what it means to be human, and we have to provide the and human answer, answer yeah. to it. So in this sense, it's a reversed uh, Turing test. And the idea is that you enter a room where, where Frankie sits, and it's a physical robot. It has some gestures. It can nod its head. And uh, its body is made of uh, th this old TV screen. and uh, Which they can see on our website, right? You have the video. Yeah, and the head is... Uh, is an Android phone and the eyes are two surveillance cameras and the interview is being recorded, of course. It's a seven-minute interview and uh, the artificial intelligence, or not so much of an intelligence, but the artificial part is that uh, it asks a question and according to the answer it's given, it chooses the next uh, question in order mm. to deep uh, to dive deeper into a specific topic. So, what was the results? There were interesting results that you discover. What does it mean to be a human? For me, I think it would be more interesting to try to find an answer that humans would give that is not human. You know, it's even if you try to trick it or try to do your best not to be human, how can you escape your humanity? You know, it's like. 
It's unescapable, I think. But we got a lot of interviews and we also traveled with this uh, robot uh, around the world and asked different people and different continents and countries. But basically, it's a project about humanity, about how we see ourselves. And I think that some people felt free to speak about things they don't usually uh, discuss when they knew that the entity that interviews them is not human. And is there like maybe one or two response that surprised you? What does it mean to be human that you remember? Some people spoke about dreams. Some people tried to interact with the robot on robotic basis, like your algorithm should do this and that, and uh, you're probably working in a specific way. Some people opened up. It was really interesting telling about their uh, romantic heartbreaks and uh, mm. a lot of personal things. And uh, I think this was the most important part for me, to feel that, to realize that people need someone or something to listen to, listen to, to them. Yeah. And we really need, as humans, companions, whether they're human or not. And what do you do with all those robots? Do you have a cemetery for robots or...? It depends. Mo most of my projects aren't, aren't about physical computing, but yeah, I think it's a really big problem for artists who de deal with uh, physical computing, uh, both to keep the works and to document them as they work. You know, if the robot is based on a certain operating system, operating system of, of a phone, yeah. uh, the phone automatically updates and then <laughs> things start to break, you know? So it's really difficult and it's different than a painting where restoration is yeah, really clear. Yeah, how do you clear. do conservation yeah. to uh, digital okay. art? It, it's really difficult. It's an open question. A lot of people kind of document it over the shoulder, they, they just videotape mm. what it does. Because um, there's a nice example of modem-based works that counted on the speed of your home modem in the 90s. And now with the internet, they, they're too fast. So it doesn't <laughs> work the, the way it was designed to work. So uh, those things change all the time. And it's really hard to recreate the experience. But I think it's part of our reality that it's becoming more ephemeral. It lives for shorter periods. Maybe that's what actually will make the art more interesting because you won't be able to experience it 10 years from now. You need to experience it now. Exactly. And I think that, uh, for instance, in the book we discussed half reading, the physical part remains the same, but the virtual part is in my hands. I can change it every day. Every mm. day when you open this book, you may realize that half of each poem is the same, but the other half changed completely. Mm. So you actually make it more exciting, I would say. I don't know, but <laughs> I, I really hope so. So this was one of the projects that you did, but you also published maybe eight books. Yes. All those books are poetry books. But not all of them are computer generated. That um, was my question. Okay. And English, Hebrew? No, uh, my language is Hebrew. When I try to write in English, which is not uh, good enough probably to write, I, I feel like I'm losing my superpowers, you know. I live in Hebrew. Hebrew is 
a unique language and uh, I really like its mysterious paths and strange behaviors. And uh, e even when we discussed code, there are a lot of things that happen there that happen because of its linguistic structure. And I don't think that the same project in English would be interesting for me. Even though you write a lot of uh, Hebrew, you actually did a cool project like this year in English. This year, uh, Israel hosted the Eurovision together with the collaborators. You tell us in a second, you actually created the first Eurovision song made by robots. And I can see it becoming a hit. <laughs> Can you tell us about this project? Because it's actually a cool song. The, the name of the song is Blue Jeans and Bloody Tears. And the name of the band or, uh, or the project is Sweaty Machines. It was conceived by uh, a guy called Nimrod Shapira. And it was sung by Izar Cohen, who won the Eurovision for Israel in 1979, I think. And it was quite fun. The, the way it was built was I built the textual generated, the generator that generated uh, the lyrics and Oracle, a commercial company built the generator for the music and then uh, a musical team, Sweaty Machines. When you say musical team, it's real people? Real people. And they did uh, a human uh, curatorial phase where they matched verses from the text with verses from the generated music. It was 100% generated, but it was 100% uh, computer generated, but it was curated in order to fit the words to the music by humans. And this must be said. And uh, the producer of the song, who was the real genius who could take anything built by computer and turn it into a hit, is uh, Avshalom Ariel, who was the producer of Toy, the, the song that, that won ah, the, the, the Eurovision uh, a year ago. Ah. So it was like a really good team of, of experts. and uh, Which you can listen again on our page uh, podcast. Uh, I, I haven't entered the YouTube page for it, but uh, I, it had more than two million views wow. within the first uh, six months. That's that I remember. <laughs> wow! Congrats! It's a lot. Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, it's it's really not that common for a poet to to see <laughs> his work being viewed by a lot of people, and it's it's strange. I don't think it's the role. It's the right role for poets, but uh, it's interesting, you know, you live only once, so... You also teach a lot, and you are a lecturer at Tel Aviv University, Shinkar College of Engineering, Design and Art, at the College of Literary Arts, Jerusalem. And one of the courses is called, actually, Computational Poetry. What do you teach there? Uh, what does it mean? Uh, first of all, it's a good chance to thank the college for the literary arts uh, Jerusalem for letting me teach such a class but the idea is that there are a lot of mechanisms to create poetry that go beyond expressing your own thoughts and feelings the idea is to create insights with the readers but it can be done in many ways some procedural ways some unaware techniques like surrealist writing, 
or using drugs and other ways, sleep deprivation and, and so forth. And, and there is the way of uh, using algorithms to do that. So this is my favorite class because I don't have to prepare. It's my life. You know, it's like it's the things that I do and love the most. But, and it's fun every year uh, to do that. And I taught that. I've been teaching that for like five or six years in Jerusalem, but it became popular and I taught it in other places as well. And I was invited to be artist in residence at uh, Caltech. And I also taught that class over there in California, which was even cooler because you see different responses and, and perspectives from different people from different backgrounds. And uh, it's amazing. Uh, when people realize that what they learned about poetry is only half of the picture and you know it's not just about spilling everything out but you can also play with language and and use techniques and use algorithms you get a larger audience to get into it. Mm. You mentioned the Artist in Residence program, and Artist in Residence program is actually a, kind of a model taken from the cultural world, which an institution can invite you for a few weeks or a few months to work in their department. Some companies doing it with their engineering teams. And you did Artist in Residence program, in, as you mentioned, in the California Institute of uh, Technology, also known as the Caltech. At the MIT Open a Documentary Lab, you gave yeah, a talk. I, I gave a talk. Yeah. You gave a talk over there, and some of the places mix of artists and residents, some of the places are more just invitation. And I wonder, because at the Literary Arts Jerusalem, I would assume it's art students, but who is the audience that you have in those places when you do artist in residence program in Caltech or you give talks in MIT uh, documentary labs? Yeah, so sometimes it's really fun because, for instance, in Caltech, you don't start with a major in literature. They do have uh, this option, but uh, few students go for it and it doesn't happen when they just start their studies. So basically most of the students are engineering students or computer science and so forth and uh, they have to take some classes that are not in computers so they see my class and they see oh okay so this is not computers but they can use computers there so let's take it so a, a lot of uh, people who like technology are open-minded and they want to see new things and it's they have this head start where they know they they can deal with something they like, but take it to a different direction. And I can tell you that at first, when I started all those bizarre experiments, people from the technological world liked it a lot more or were open to it a lot more than people in the arts. And I think it changed with time as technology became more and more involved in our day-to-day -day lives. But uh, still, I must say that people from the technological world are looking for creativity. They're looking for new perspectives to deal with the same topics in order to find the next big thing sometimes. But they have a genuine curiosity to see where technology can take us. You're touching at an interesting point, at least for me, because I'm always looking for how artists can work with the world of business, because I believe artists can contribute a lot in many aspects. And you are an artist that work in a technology company. And I wonder how the fact that you are an artist influence the, maybe your direct team, how it influences your work. 
in that sense, your day-to-day startup work? I don't know whether it influences my, my daily job because sometimes uh, you want to be really focused during your work and then fly away in your imagination when you go back home. But I do think there are a lot of similarities uh, between the tech world and the art world. There's a constant search for creativity, for the next big thing or the, the next cool thing. And I think that there's a lot of project management that uh, lies <laughs> below both, really, because an art project is, is a project to be managed, especially when it involves budgets or when it involves technology. And technology can change and things may work and may stop work. And you want it, if you want to uh, put an, a technological art installation in a museum, and it has to stand there for five years, then you have to work hard to make it uh, sustainable. It's sustainable, and, yeah. And so it's a lot about risk management and understanding directions of the work and the trends and wh- where it can go. Uh, so a lot of it is involving project management. At the end, everything is project management. So you just gave me a new uh, perspective to explain why I think art is relevant and why art is very similar to technology projects or technology work. Is there something interesting you're working on these days? Uh, First of all, this term I'm teaching 11 hours a week, which is a lot. But I think that a direction that I'm trying... To explore now is uh, genetic algorithms. And I there's this thing in the last couple of years that texts are being text elements are being treated as mathematical creatures. Uh, starting with the uh, word to vec and word embedding algorithms. Uh, word to vec is a Google algorithm that turned words into vectors, into mathematical creatures. So I think of trying to combine this idea with the idea of genetic algorithms where a mathematical creature is resembling DNA, a sequence of genes, and texts can uh, reproduce. They, they, there's a, y- you can create a project of selection, which is not a natural selection, but it is a kind of selection. Then a crossover, you kind of mate different texts and create a new combination as their offspring, and you can create mutations in texts. And I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to explore how texts can, recre- uh, can procreate uh, by themselves. Wow. Sounds exciting. I'm looking forward to hear about it, to see actually, or maybe experience this this project. Great. Eran, thank you very much for coming and sharing all your uh, great work. I love it. We will put many of the projects that you mentioned and others uh, on the website. So thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, I really appreciate your project. And uh, I really enjoyed our conversation. Great. Thanks, Eran. Thank you. We are producing our podcast without any ads, and we are relying on our community's direct support. People like you, our listeners. So if you find it valuable, I will be super grateful if you could spread the word by leaving a rating and maybe a review. It will take you just 30 seconds to do so, and it is very helpful in getting these ideas to a wider audience. If you are interested to develop your artistic mindset, if you are looking to grow your business, If you want to develop the innovation competencies in your organizations, I will highly recommend you to check our workshops and trainings, all available on our website, 
This episode was recorded from Google for Startups Creator Studio in Tel Aviv. Check out Google for Startups website to learn more about their support for entrepreneurs. The episode was mixed and mastered by Daniel Duran. You can subscribe to the Artian podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our previous shows are available on our website, www.deartian.com slash podcast. Each episode includes show notes, guest recommendations, videos, and other materials. We can also be found on our LinkedIn page, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can reach us directly via email at podcast at theartian.com. So I will be waiting here for you in the next episode with me, Nir Hindi. Once again, thanks for listening.